0: I always just felt like Pelotonia is this platform to empower people to take some action, whether that's volunteering, whether that's riding, whether that's donating, showing up and and cheering on the weekend, but like this platform to take action against the disease that takes everything from people and makes people feel hopeless. And at the end of the day, if we can approach our work with that understanding, there will be very few organizations that can make the impact we can
1: Joe Apgar is the president of Pelotonia, which was established in 2008. The objective of this rapidly growing nonprofit is to fund life-saving cancer research. Joe himself is a cancer survivor and a passionate advocate for young adult cancer survivorship. He speaks frequently about the importance of cancer research, advocacy, survivorship, and the unique challenges faced by adolescent and young adult survivors. Joe's a a friend and a great guy, and you'll hear how cancer has affected him personally, his family, and how he's using all of that experience to lead Pelotonia today. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. All right, well, welcome back to another episode of the Gravity Podcast. Today's guest is Joe Apgar. Joe, thank you for joining me and for agreeing to have this conversation.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me on.
1: Yeah, uh, let's start at the beginning. Uh, I know a lot of people here in Columbus at least are familiar with you and and Palatania, but I want to give everybody a chance to hear your full journey. So tell me a little bit about Kind of the early days, you know, where you're from, your family, any anything that kind of highlights uh, stands out as important from your from your childhood.
0: Yeah, so I grew up uh, in Northwest Pennsylvania in a small town called Edinburgh. Uh, there's a state university there in the Pennsylvania school system called Edinburgh University. Uh, so it's a town of like 2,500 people when school is not in session and 10,000 people when school is in session. So pretty dominated by the school, really tight knit community. I grew up with my mom and my dad and and my younger sister. She's two years younger than I am. Um, just like super tight knit community, great group of friends, great group of family friends. Um, so my parents group of friends, you know, are just lifelong friends still, uh, for, for both me and, and my parents, you know, high school sports type of town where everybody goes Friday night lights and watches the football game and, you know, neighborhood barbecues on Saturday and Sunday and just a, a really great place to grow up, you know, away from a big city. But, uh, you know, the idea of a community was really strong.
1: Yeah. And, and tell me obviously community ends up playing an important role in, in your life probably in a number of ways which we'll touch on but tell me a little bit more about kind of you and and what your interests were or kind of what kind of kid you were uh sort of what was going on for you uh, early on
0: one of the most fortunate things was i grew up in a family where my parents didn't try to steer me towards anything and you know, try to open up any opportunity that they had uh, to give me experiences and whether it was different sports or activities or creative things. Uh, I always gravitated towards sports and and particularly baseball. I loved baseball growing up. Probably had to do with, you know, that I was really good at it early on, you know, so I was really good. I was like the only kid in t-ball that could actually hit and hit home runs. And, you know, when we moved up to coach pitch, I was really good and so I think that just led to an interest in, in baseball. So I love playing baseball and I also loved collecting baseball cards. That was like my young passion and um, still to this day collect baseball cards. Um, although there's been fewer and fewer people uh, in my adult life that I, that I come across that collect as well. But, you know, I was a, a really good kid. Uh, my parents always called me honest Abe and I never lied about anything. You know, if, if I hit my sister and, and my sister was crying, uh, my parents came into the room and they would ask me what happened. And, and I would say, I hit my sister. And so there's just a lot of funny stories growing up about that. And uh, I had a group of three or four friends that they were just super tight, um, all of, in the same neighborhood, uh, all in the same graduating class, all played the same sports together. And so I was, I was pretty competitive, but not, you know, hyper competitive. You know, I was, I don't want to say fine with losing, but it, you know, losing a game never ruined me. Um, I always sort of realized there was more to more to life than just you know the t-ball game. So, but that 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 you know, sports and sort of I guess creative outlet of collecting things was my was a lot of my childhood.
1: Yeah, and, and what do you attribute the? the honest Abe piece, you know, the, even not just the, the honesty, but, you know, the attitude or mindset, it sounds like you had around sports, you know, competitive and excelling, but not so focused on outcome. I mean, it sounds like you're like a pretty grounded young man, you know, what do you attribute that to?
0: Yeah, I think my parents, um, and even my grandparents, my, my grandpa on my dad's side was, college athlete, college football player, owned a really big trucking business on the East Coast. And, you know, was a golfer later in life and was really into sailing. And I feel like one of the oldest stories I ever heard in my family was this story about uh using a sailing regatta, my grandfather, and, and he won by a long shot. And, and when they went to do the award ceremony, he gave the trophy back and he told the people that he had missed one of the buoys or he had hit one of the buoys or something, something that would have disqualified him, but nobody saw. And so he gave up the win of this like really prestigious race that he had sort of tried his whole life to try to, to try to win. And that's like a very old family story that, that we had always told. And I always sort of took from it that it was more important to be honest and truthful than it was to capture victory, you know, at the end of the day. The question, like, from my parents was always, like, are you happy? Like, are you happy doing what you're doing? Not, what's your batting average? How many home runs have you hit this year? Like, it was never about stats. It was always about, like, are you doing what makes you happy? And I think that was just an early lesson that is just, I've continued to carry on.
1: And, and have you talked to your parents about that? I'm kind of curious, you know, to what extent they were knowledgeable or intentional about focusing on, you know, happiness as opposed to batting average, you know, if that's just who they were, how they were raised, or if there was some sort of intentional pivot to raise their children this way.
0: Yeah. I don't, I don't know that I've ever sat down and talked to them about it, although just knowing them so well. And I think my dad was actually really competitive Uh, growing up as a, as a kid, he was, uh, in his late teens invited to, you know, a tryout for the New York Mets, but his mother, my grandmother made him turn it down because his grades weren't good enough in high school. And, uh, but he was hyper competitive, really good athlete. My mom was as far away from a good athlete as you could probably get. And had she done sports, she would have been in right field picking clovers out of the ground during the game. And so I feel like that there must have just been some agreement early on that they were going to meet in the middle on how they, um, how, how they raise their kids. But, you know, my parents are, are just very focused on, you know, simple things and, you know, they, they derive a lot of their happiness, most of their happiness out of, you know, the connection to the family. And it's never been about things. It's, you know, never been about going and doing things. Even it's just you know, quality time with the family. And I think that's just been a thread through yeah. how they raised us. And, and I think adversity early on in our, our family, I, you know, my, my sister was diagnosed with cancer when she was five and I was seven. And that puts life into perspective pretty quickly yeah. early on. So I, I
1: think that experience is, is, you know, been a huge part of our upbringing. Well, wow, that's interesting. You know, the cancer becomes a part of your family at a at a young age. Do you remember, you know, at seven years old, you know, what was going on and, and and how that impacted your family?
0: Yeah. So, you know, it's one of those things. It's it's like very vivid early memories. So when I was seven, I remember my sister crying on the living room floor. Oh in pain, that her her stomach and her side hurt. We happened to live across the street from our primary care physician. And we're able to walk over to his house and he checked her out, did a, you know, kind of an informal exam on her and realized that she had a really hard mass protruding out of her, her back, you know, under her rib cage out in the back where the kidneys are. And that quickly sort of spiraled into her being at Children's Hospital in Pittsburgh, which was two hours away from where we grew up. Uh, and I think, I think it was on Thanksgiving Day in 1992, or it was the day before Thanksgiving, 1992. She had surgery to remove her kidney, her right kidney, uh, and, and the tumor that was attached to it and had been diagnosed with what's called Wilms tumor. And so she was five and she was a little, she was actually a little old. To be getting that cancer. So that that cancer at the time was presenting, you know, more in two and three-year-olds, not five-year-olds. And it, it was interesting. So I lived kind of close to my mom's mom. Uh, she was about 20 minutes away. And she came to live with me for a while at our house while my parents lived in Pittsburgh uh, and were taking care of my sister. And she was in the hospital for a period of time. And then she had pretty intensive chemotherapy for I want to say close to two years it was just an experience I'll, I'll never forget sitting on my dad's lap he was sitting in this brown leather chair that they still have to this day uh, at his desk it was in their bedroom he had his desk in their bedroom at our house sitting on his lap and i asked him if my sister was going to die and i remember that he paused he said no but he paused And it was like that level of uncertainty, I don't think I appreciated until I became a parent in the last couple of years of like, here's your oldest child asking you if your youngest child is going to make it. Right. In addition to bringing the family closer, I think it just, it just, it gives you a perspective that you can't, you can't quite understand until you go through something like that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And did your sister beat cancer I mean it did go on to really live cancer-free
0: yeah yeah she she beat cancer um, she is now 34 uh, she's a nurse uh, I think she's a nurse as a direct result of of that experience but she's a nurse she's a traveling nurse so she's been traveling all over the country for close to the last 10 years just doing stints in different areas of the country last couple of years have been brutal on nurses, um, just with COVID and everything, but yeah, she's, she's thriving, healthy adult Has a, a condo here in, in Columbus as sort of her home base, but get to see a lot of her now.
1: That's great. And, uh, let's, let's kind of follow the threads of, of your journey as you move through high school into college, you know, tell me a little bit more about kind of how your life unfolds.
0: Yeah. So I was recalling some of these stories the other day that I forget what the the venue was, but sort of I'll say like twelve or thirteen years old. Uh, back to baseball. You know, I was I was heavy into baseball. That was the, the one sport I was playing. I was really tall. I was a big kid, but I was never coordinated, cut out enough for, for basketball or, or anything like that. Football, I played a little bit, but not really. I was far and away the best baseball player in our area. I was a pitcher. I, you know, had all the stats to back it up. And my dad was a truck driver at the time and was gone a lot. Uh, You know, he was a long haul, long haul truck driver. And of the kids in my area that were really good at baseball, he was one of the few parents that like wasn't a coach. And I remember trying out for the 12 and 13 year old all star team that is the path to the, Little League World Series, which is like every kid's dream if you you grew up liking baseball, and didn't make the team. And the team ended up being coached by, you know, eight or nine dads, and and three or four of those dads had sons that were actually not very good, but made the team. And I was left off the team, and I'll never forget that because it. And I'll never forget sitting down with my parents. I was so dejected after that. And, you know, I had a good tryout, all of these things. And, it, and I'll never forget sitting down with my parents and having a conversation about, at the end of the day, like, merit doesn't get you everywhere you need to be. Like, that's like a fun truism that everybody likes to believe. But sometimes, you know, it matters more who you know or who likes you or those sorts of things. and. And a lot of that's out of your control. And so, you know, while this hurts and isn't fun, this is, you just sort of got to live with it. And I, I know that there was a conversation with my dad and some of the coaches and, you know, ultimately didn't go anywhere. And there's a moment I'll never forget because I, I I think one, it, it I sort of realized, you know, my perspective was baseball isn't everything, right? Right. But two, like there's just so much more to life, and there there's also, unfortunately, in circumstances, more to just merit than sort of getting to where you need to be, and it also started the beginning of me losing a little interest in baseball. Still played baseball through high school, and and was still a, a good baseball player, but um, my my interest level in baseball was not where my ability level was. My ability was was much higher than my interest. I actually started swimming. Uh, our school was the only high school in the area that didn't have a pool. Uh, but they decided to start a swim team when I was in middle school. So by the time I got to high school, the swim team was like three years old. And there I had a group of friends that, you know, were going to try out for the swim team. And so I decided to take a summer swim team program leading into high school and realized I really liked it. And I'm tall, you know, I'm six foot five now. I was six foot five my summer after eighth grade. So I was as tall as I am now with That with when I was going into high school. I was tall and I was pretty lean. I was not very muscular uh, and swimming like clicked over the summer. And so I tried out for our high school swim team. We were renting a pool over at the university that was down the road and I made the team. Like I put all this effort in and I made the swim team. Uh, Later, I learned that nobody actually got cut from the swim team tryouts because they needed as many people (laughs) as they could get. Um, But, uh, you know, I just I started to love swimming and we had a great coach. Her name was Kathy. Uh, She was a college swimmer, a really elite college swimmer um, who just had a passion for for the sport. And I learned so much about the sport of swimming in that first year that when people ask ask today, like, what was your sport? And I say swimming was my sport. Um, I ended up becoming pretty good, Uh, went to the state championships my senior year, you know, going from like not really knowing how to swim and doing all that stuff to sort of ending up in the state championships four years later was a really big sense of pride. But it also sort of taught me this idea of, you know, swimming is kind of a social sport especially in high school, there's just a lot of like fun, you know, you're doing a lot of fun traveling things. It's kind of a grueling sport from a practice standpoint has a lot of similarities to cross country running or track or cycling and things like that. And, and the fun thing about swimming was that that there are so many different options of ways you could participate. You know, there's 25 events in a meet and there's relays. So there's team aspects of it and there's individual aspects of it. And you could like, sort Of check all of these different boxes of uh, you know wanting to be a part of a really great relay team, but also wanting to you know pursue this path of, of racing in a certain event that you're not good at today. It's an individual event that the outcome of it in a year is going to be 100% based on the work you put in. And so, it's fun. so I, I I fell in love with swimming and ended up having a really great sort of high school experience overall. I met a girl my senior year of high school, you know, who became a girlfriend for a while that was um, very smart and like was very academic oriented, which helped me focus on academics because I hadn't been that focused on academics until then, which I think led me to getting some really good grades and getting into, you know, Penn state and all of those things and set me up for what became a really good academic uh, experience in college too. So High school was great. I, I, I never look back on high school and have sort of bad memories
1: about those times. It's interesting also what you can learn from sport and team. You know, that's a theme that comes up a lot on the podcast as I've interviewed many people who share that experience. Swimming also, um, interestingly enough, I had a guy on my podcast, oh, not that long ago, a few months ago, who also referenced swimming in particular, The the... Camaraderie of that sport, and yeah, there's travel, but you know, as you mentioned, I think the grueling uh, work ethic and practice that is a shared experience really uh, seems to be especially bonding in, in that sport. And uh, yeah, I'm curious. You know, as you go to college, you know you you started to mention a focus uh, a little bit more on academics, uh, but I'm kind of curious. You know, what what uh is unfolding for you there and and I don't know to what extent some of your team experience or the high school experiences continue to shape your life or if you know you start to enter into a new phase, but I'm you know curious to hear what what that period's like.
0: Yeah, so you know, college was college was really fun. I think, you know, I there are some decisions I made and this was sort of shedding a light on the sort of foreshadowing future things, you know, with my parents. But my mom went to Penn State. My dad did not go to college. He he went to the Air Force after high school. Um, so I grew up watching Penn State football on Saturdays and, you know, Joe Paterno and and all those things. And so I knew I wanted to go to Penn State. I got into the Penn State system, but I, I ended up choosing to go to one of the satellite campuses. So the largest satellite campus was about 30 minutes from where I grew up. it was called Penn State Barron in Erie, Pennsylvania. And there were a couple of reasons I ended up going there. One was the swimming state championships that I had referenced earlier. Those were at University Park at the big campus of Penn State. And I got to experience that campus. And it was like overwhelming being from a really small town like that, just the sheer size of that and sort of going off on my own and dealing with that I wasn't sure that that's what i wanted the the satellite campus provided sort of what i thought was a better cushion and i'm very much like a two-year path to then going to the larger campus and finishing my college career so i ended up going to the satellite campus and uh, it was like the perfect fit of all things and i got incredibly lucky one day so i was in a dorm it's called thompson hall and right outside my dorm was a sand volleyball uh, court there was like four courts and i was walking by with one of my high school friends uh, who ended up going to the same campus so we're walking by and there's a group of three guys needing two more people to play And so there was eight people on the court and there was a group of five friends already there. And these three guys were like, so I'm six, five, kind of lean, looks pretty athletic. And my other buddy's like six, two, and he's very athletic, you know, muscular sort of guy. And so these, these guys were like, Hey, you guys want to play volleyball? You know, we play volleyball for a couple hours and just click with these guys those three guys end up becoming my college roommates for the final three years of school. Uh, one of them becomes my best man in my wedding, but probably my three best friends in the world are these guys, Josh, Tom, and Zach. And they were the three guys playing volleyball that day. And they all had something about them that was unique that I was able to sort of lean on. So Zach grew up in New York, very, I think, structured family would be the appropriate way to say it. He was very strong academically, but he's also a great athlete. And we both ended up studying finance together. So we were on the same track. And he was just he didn't miss study sessions. He didn't miss, he didn't miss class. He didn't do these sort of things to slack off. And I always admired that about him and always sort of tried to emulate him in that way. My friend Tom had a longtime girlfriend, came from a small town in Western Pennsylvania, just like, like a good old farm boy and super passionate about his family, like cared about very few things in the world, but the things he cared about he cared about like really deeply. And so like that sort of passion. And he, he's the one who ended up being the best man in our wedding. Uh, And then my buddy, Josh grew up, you know, he spent like 10 years in Africa uh, on his dad was like a minister, a, a pastor or something. And they were on like this 10 year mission in Africa. Like he had all these crazy worldly experiences and was just out to live life for like, He was out to take like the good of life and bring it into his life, and like those are like the three things that like I feel like I built a lot of my adulthood on, and and a lot of it just came and was influenced by these three guys who I happened to meet, you know, one of the first days of college.
1: Interesting, yeah. Wow, Uh, it's funny, you know. Certainly, in hindsight, to look back and see how what looks pretty random. Yeah. um you know, it turns out to be pretty important so tell me uh where where do you go from here what, what do you what do you decide to do professionally as as you move through college
0: I wanted to do something in sort of the financial world I always took well the numbers I just like the idea of you know certain aspects of the world of finance or you know investment related felt Competitive in some aspect, which which certainly clicked with me a little bit, but it was the one thing that felt really natural, and actually sort of led myself to accounting for a while, and then had like a mid college crisis of sorts, and took all these oceanography classes because I thought I wanted to be like an oceanographer for like a semester and a half, Um, and then I I ended up studying finance and at Penn State finances. I don't know if it still is today, but you used to have to have a 3.6 grade point average just to get admitted to the program year, junior year. And so everybody that made it into the finance program was a good student and was working hard and all this stuff. And um, that's what I ended up doing. Uh, I did an internship after my junior year in college at Merrill Lynch, uh, which still exists today as a brand, but as part of Bank of America. Back then, it was a standalone business you know, did an internship in New Jersey and New York. Just, I hated everything about New York city. You know, I liked the work, you know, and and the work was intense and long hours and stuff. And I didn't mind that, but I just did not like New York city. I didn't like that. Every other block you're walking under scaffolding and it's just, you know, New York city, like from the skyline is beautiful when you actually get down to inspect the, the streets of New York city. It's really not. And it was just so big. And so I, I went through this weird phase my senior year where I left that internship at the end of the summer with a job offer, which was like everybody's hope and dream that you do your junior year internship and you get this big job offer. And I had that in hand in writing. Uh, and I was the only one in my class who didn't sign it. Huh. And and I ended up calling the HR uh, person mm-hmm. The very last day of its expiration and just said i want you to know i'm not going to sign this i just and she's like well, what that's that's fine but where, where are you going like i'm curious you know what bank you're going to and yeah I, said, I actually don't have a job lined up <laughs> uh it's just this this job doesn't feel right for me uh so around that same time uh rockbridge you know based here in columbus was probably 20 people back in 2000 this was 2007 they had wanted to get like an analyst out of college program, you know, fired up and had emailed the head finance professor at Penn State. Hey, do you have any, you know, kids that are looking elsewhere, you know, outside of New York, we'd love to talk to them. So my professor who I was really close with, you know, knew about my situation and connected us and uh, ended up coming to Columbus in the fall of 2007. Stayed out at Easton, where Rockbridge's offices are, and got to explore some of the short north, and just loved the vibe that Columbus had. That I was able to drive my car here, and yeah. was able to drive a car in the city, like you know, and it still felt like a big city, but kind of felt was, like
1: a small town too. And not as much scaffolding here. <laughs> not as much scaffolding
0: here. So I ended up signing a job offer that December. To come out to Columbus and start at Rockbridge the following June, so that would have been June of 2008, and then five weeks after that, you know, mid January, January 25th, 2008, I ended up getting diagnosed with cancer myself. So through <laughs> through senior year, for for quite the <laughs> quite the pivot.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk about that. You know, obviously, cancer once again. This time, you know, you personally um, strike your family. Tell me, you know, a little bit more about, you know, finding out that you have cancer and and how things transpire from there.
0: It was a Friday afternoon. You know, this is one of those sort of sequence of events that's burned into my memory. So Friday afternoon, um, I had a light class scheduled on Fridays, you know, my senior year. Uh, and I was also, my roommate Tom and I were like really big into uh, Mario Golf on Nintendo 64. So every day after class, come home, sit on the couch, you know, crack a beer and play Mario Golf for hours. And so we we do this on Friday at like lunchtime. And I, and I tell him I said hey Tom, who was a nursing major said, "Hey, I you know, I've got this lump uh, my groin and I don't know what to do about it and he was like what do you mean you don't know what to do about it you need to go it was called Hour Hall which was like the nurse's office of the university he's like you need to go to Hour right now and get that checked out you don't mess around with that stuff and I was like no it doesn't hurt like I feel like it's probably fine like you know I'll just sort of wait and see and he was like no shut shut the game off He's like, I'm walking with you. This is a 15-minute walk. He's like, I'm going to walk with you. I'll sit outside. He's like, I don't need to go in with you, but I'll sit outside and wait for you. He's like, but you're going to get it checked out. And so I, I walk into the, into the office, and, you know, it's after a Thursday night of, of partying on Penn State's campus. And so you walk in, and there's just a bunch of students there that need, you know, who knows who who really knows what they need but there's just a bunch of young hungover you know oh, yeah. college students in there and there's a a woman at a desk reception desk in the middle of all these people and she's like what are you here for and i was like well i don't really want to say in front of all of these people you know but but i feel like i need to get checked out by a doctor so i go in to the exam room and you know i had this lump on my testicle and i so I, you know, undressed with the little robe on and this doctor who's a male comes in, talks, we talk about what's going on. You know, he was like, look, there's a number of things to be. Let me check it out. So he, he gives me an exam and I, I will literally never forget his eyes changed. And he looked at me and said, would you mind if I go get my resident? I'd like her to experience what this feels like he hadn't told me what this is yet. Um, And and I said, you know, okay, sure. Like, why not? uh, In walks, like, you know, now it's exaggerated in my mind, but like the most beautiful woman I've ever seen in my entire life, you know, in her scrubs. And I'll never forget. I was like, look, no offense, but I can't do this. Yeah, Like this is just not, this is not happening today. Um, And so he's like, look, you need to go to the emergency room at the hospital. I'll call and tell them you're on your way. So you don't have to sit and wait, you know, for hours on end. He's like, if you need a ride, we can give you a ride. You know, I said, no, I don't need a ride. My roommate's sitting outside. So walked outside, saw Tom and said, you need to take me to the hospital. And so we walk back to our apartment. He takes me to the emergency room, go through, you know, an ultrasound and a number of tests and blood draws and the whole nine yards. And by this time, what most people don't realize is, is Penn State doesn't have like a hospital like Ohio State does here. So Penn State's hospital is like an hour and a half away in, in Hershey, Pennsylvania. Uh, this is like a rural hospital this would be like going out to like licking county hospital or or something it was like you could tell that that people had started to communicate that there was a young man in here that was probably getting diagnosed with cancer like that was the vibe and so a couple hours later ended up on the phone with a doctor because they didn't have a doctor within like four hours that you know had dealt with testicular cancer. So this guy, Dr. Sokola drove up from Virginia. He called me on his way, you know, said, Hey, look, I saw your images. You're going to spend the night in the hospital. We're going to have surgery in the morning. You know, it's treatable, but it it's not something you want to wait on all this stuff. And I, I remember I was in a little room, little conference room with the phone that they had let me use. And I said, can you, can I give you my parents' phone number? Because I feel like you need to call them too. Like, I don't know if I can explain this over the phone. So this was probably nine o'clock at night. And I called my parents and I I said, hey, can you, my mom answered. And I said, can you get dad on the phone too? And that's like the tell, right? Like back in the days of landlines, like yeah. I've got some news to tell you and I need you both to hear it at the exact same time. And immediately I could tell my mom, you know, got nervous. And and I just said to them, I said, I'm sitting in the hospital. They are telling me I have testicular cancer. I'm going to have surgery tomorrow morning at 8 a.m., which was on a Saturday. I have surgery. I think it will be a few days of recovery. And then, you know, they'll biopsy it and all will learn my options. From there, I said, but, you know it's a long drive. You guys don't like really need to come. I can just let you know how it goes. <laughs> they, were, they were like, yeah, right. So they miraculously showed up three hours later, uh, yeah. at a four hour drive. So I know they were hustling. The next morning I had surgery, woke up from surgery. You know, my three roommates were, uh, standing at the end of the bed my, with my parents and my sister, no one knew what to say. My buddy, Tom, he could break the ice like in a room, and and he said, uh, "Hey Lance, you got some shit coming out of your mouth." Like I had like some white stuff coming out of my mouth, and like the whole room sort of you know broke into <laughs> laughter, and it became like this funny moment. But yeah, that was like a period of twenty four hours. I don't yeah.
1: forget. Wow, I bet. So um, then what? I mean, after surgery treatment i mean how how long are you really having to fight and deal with this
0: yeah so i mean the great thing about having testicular cancer is it's pretty curable it's got like right. a 98% cure rate or something survival rate but i didn't know at the time obviously i know very much about now is there's like 20 different types of testicular cancer and so it very much matters what type of cancer you have. And so I ended up having what was called stage two non-seminoma germ cell cancer. And one of the unique things about that is it uh, has a lot of the same tissue makeup as like an embryo of a child. Uh, but as a result grows fast and move, can move through your body really fast and can move through your body in ways that you can't always catch on imaging right away. And so there's a couple paths where you know you could do some proactive radiation and might need some chemo. And that is like a very unknown path. It, 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 surveillance will just watch you. You'll come to the doctor every two weeks and get these scans and do all this stuff. And if something pops up down the line, it could mean another surgery, it could mean more intense treatment. But there was just like so much uncertainty in that path. The other path was um, to do a really serious surgery called a RPLND, which is a retroperitoneal lymph node dissection. So basically the inside of your stomach and chest cavity is called the retroperitoneum. It's like where all your kidneys, everything's like hooked up to uh, basically all like the inside of your back and all of your lymph nodes are attached to it and attached to arteries and that is where this cancer spread. So it would spread from your, your testicle in the tumor to the lymph nodes and then to your lung or to your brain. And so that's why a lot of testicular cancer patients end up with lung or brain cancer because it's traveled in this manner, but you can't identify all the lymph nodes on imaging because they're just buried in your body. So the surgery is like an eight hour massive surgery. They, take organs out of your body and put them in life-saving bags and they cut all the lymph nodes out of the inside of your your chest and stomach one by one. And they bi- biopsy every single one. They have a cardiac surgeon that sits in the room in case, you know, they hit a blood vessel or something. Like it was not lost on me how serious of a surgery that was. But what I learned was that if you go through that surgery and things look okay, you could be kind of done and you could just have sort of regular monitoring every few months and like no radiation, no chemo necessary. And I could schedule it for like a week from when I was having this discussion with the doctor, which would have been February. And I was so focused on graduating with my friends And getting to this job in columbus like columbus became my like north star in a lot of ways where i was like i I just if i get to columbus in june that means i'm past this right like that means like i'm into the next phase of my life and so i remember asking my parents i said what do you think i should do and because they were staying at a hotel down in state college helping take care of me cooking meals and stuff and I said, what do you think I should do? And he said, we're not going to tell you what to do. So you, you can make this decision yourself. We have confidence that you'll make the right decision for yourself. I said, okay. And it, it was just sort of like a shine back on that independence and sort of trust that they had always given me. Um, but here it was like, you know, it's like literally and figuratively, it's your life in your hands. And, and, and they're just – They're basically saying, look, we trust that you'll make the right decision for you and we're going to support whatever path you choose in whatever way you need us to support. We're going to support. We'll be there. Uh, But we want you to be really confident and happy with your decision. So we had a follow up doctor appointment. They came. The doctor like opened up this book about how they do this procedure. And we we talked through all the things and, and he said, well, what do you what do you want to do? I want to talk through the different options with you. And my parents excused themselves out of the room. So we don't want to influence him. Like we're going to go stand outside. So it was just me and this doctor making the decision. And I ultimately decided to get the major surgery Mm. uh, so I could stay in school. But it was like, it was looking back on it now, like so emblematic of how they raised me and treat me still to this day. Like, very much like an adult, very much, you know, trust that they've built the framework to help me, but like, you can make that decision. And I think it says a lot.
1: No question. I mean, pretty major decision to let go and really trust your child to make and makes sense. I mean, it's a very personal decision. It's your body, it's your, your life. I mean, it's, you know, really should be yours, but I would imagine for most parents, it would be hard not to Want to have a significant say in all of that, and maybe even guide the the answer. So, good, good, really amazing, you know, parenting, and uh, obviously makes a huge impact in 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 your life. Let's talk about how you end up at Pelotonia. I mean, obviously now cancer um, has directly impacted you and your family. And I know that Rockbridge has been very active um, with Pelotonia over the years. So I'm sure, you know, your exposure to Pelotonia starts there, but I'm more interested in the decision to commit your work uh, to this cause and kind of how you went about arriving at that decision.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, lots of deliberating. I can tell you that. So, In 2015, you know, I'd been working at Rockbridge. We had started a Peloton and they were super supportive of my involvement uh, in Pelotonia. And Doug Ullman had gotten hired uh, and I think it was announced in late 2014 and he he actually arrived uh, in town in 2015. And he and I got to know one another. um, And we had very similar stories about having cancer in college and sort of the way our treatments went and I think socially got along really well. And so we just developed a really nice relationship. And, but I was really liking the work I was doing at Rockbridge and, and professionally I thought I was doing really well and gotten some promotions and doing interesting stuff and uh, was not looking to go anywhere, but you know, Doug and I got to talking about just his vision for the organization and what Pelotani could be and um, his experience at building live strong and sort of his strengths and weaknesses and things that i thought were my strengths and weaknesses and i think over time we kind of figured out that we might complement each other quite a bit and i'd always thought i had a really amazing boss and mentor at rockbridge Um, his name is brett alexander and he was my boss you know right from the get-go and you know almost like a similar relationship to to my parents, where he I built a lot of trust with him, and he was someone I really admired as a leader. He taught me a lot, but what I what I took from that experience was you work for people, right? Like you know, it, it's nice to work for a company that that does all these really nice things, but like at the end of the day, your experience in an organization comes down to the people you work with. So as as Doug and I were having these conversations. You know, it was clear to me that if the opportunity ever came up, I would seriously consider working with Doug, you know, in a in a formal capacity. And and so in early 2016, you know, he presented me with an opportunity to come work at Pelotonia in a kind of a niche uh, new role. But you know, it's a small team, and get to have my hands in a lot of different things, and would bring a skill set to the team that didn't really exist before, and Perspective as another survivor on the team, all these, all these things, and I, you know, I, I'd like to say it was like this super easy decision to just you know say yes and come join the team. There's a lot of factors that went into it. You know, we uh, it was a big pay cut from what I was making. My wife and I were sort of living a really great life, traveling a lot. She was a merchant at Victoria's Secret at the time, and you know we we knew we had adoption on our horizon um, as a result of my cancer couldn't have biological children and adoptions private adoptions expensive and you know taking a pay cut you know in front of that like how does that impact you know our future and all sorts of things went into it and I, I ultimately just decided one day I think after talking to a few people that it, it, when I look back you know 20 years from now i, I really genuinely felt like I would have regretted not taking the opportunity to work at Pelotonia. Like that's, at the end of the day, that's what it came down to. And it's like, how do you, you know, live your life with as few regrets as possible. And I, I knew that this could be one of them if I didn't, didn't take the opportunity. So I left Rockbridge and joined uh, the team here in June, 2016. Uh, so six and a half years ago. And over time I've been in a bunch of different roles and, fortunate now to to be able to co-lead the organization with Doug and it's been nothing short of amazing and, and has blown away my expectations both from a passion standpoint but also from a challenge standpoint you know it's hard to do the work we do and you know overlay that with the understanding that there's people every day coming to our organization and coming into our lives that are getting diagnosed with cancer just like you know I had years before and But it's such fun work. The community is full of so many amazing people. Um, And to be able to help deliver the joy that Palatania brought me early on in my cancer journey, to be on on the giving part of that and being able to help produce that
1: and see how it makes people feel is there's like no better feeling in the world. Yeah. I I imagine. And I think it's, Interesting, because I know, you know, true for Doug also, who uh, is a friend and has been on the podcast uh, and hearing, you know, his journey. There's something about the uh, lived experience that you've had that uh, perfectly uh, qualifies you to be in the role that you're in. You know, I, I, I don't know that it's necessary, but it, it certainly has to help for you to fully understand what it's like to get that diagnosis as a family member and personally and then to understand the journey that is the things that you think about still probably to this day I mean it's it's an it's a real specific experience that you know for you to now serve that population brings a deeper level of probably compassion and empathy and appreciation, understanding for what it means.
0: Yeah, no, you're spot on. And I think, I think there's a lot of amazing people that could sort of lead an organization like this. And, and I think, you know, having cancer is not a, not a prerequisite certainly, but it certainly helps. And I think in the simplest form until you experience cancer and whether that's yourself or somebody very close to you and you realize how helpless of a disease it is what it's like to sit across the room from a stranger who's who's in that moment telling you you have cancer and changing your life forever and the feeling of hopelessness the feeling of you know not knowing what to do and then at the other end of the spectrum finding an organization like palatania, where you feel empowered to be in control and take action against this disease that sort of took so much from you. And, and and I always just felt like Pelotonia is this platform to empower people to take some action, whether that's volunteering, whether that's riding, whether that's donating, showing up and, and cheering on the weekend, but like this platform to take action against the disease that takes everything from people. Yeah. And makes people feel hopeless. And at the end of the day, if we can approach our work with that understanding, there will be very few organizations that can make the impact we can.
1: Yeah. Well, there's no question that uh, Pelotonia and you, Doug, and the many, many, many others involved have made an enormous impact. And just as we start to wrap up here, may- maybe you could... Just for those that don't know, who might not be from Columbus, put some numbers or or quantify the impact, and and then also, you know, give us some insight into where things are headed. You know, I know with the pandemic, a lot shifted, and you guys have pivoted and thrived, and appear to be, you know, having a lot of momentum. So, love to hear about what the future looks like as well.
0: Yeah, so a little background on Palatania for for the listeners who aren't so familiar, the idea was, you know, started in the late two thousands and our first ride uh, bike ride was in 2009. And the idea was, you know, could you rally a community of people at the grassroots level to get really involved and advocate for cancer and cancer research and, and fundraise, you know, federal funding had been declining for years in the cancer research, cancer research had begun to get more expensive. And There was just these proof points over the years that cancer research is so complex, but that if we can just keep investing in it, like the progress is going to speed up and speed up. The unknown is, can you get a community to rally around that? A lot of communities have tried, you know, different forms of events over the years, and very few have been successful. And there was one up in Boston, the Pan Mass Challenge, that had been very successful. And Palatine was modeled after that. So the first year, 2,200 riders showed up. And they raised four and a half million dollars, blew away everybody's expectations uh, about what this event could be. And fast forward to you know this year, uh, we had sixty five hundred riders. We'll raise north of twenty million dollars again in a single year. We crossed two hundred and fifty million dollars raised all time. So in fourteen years, two hundred and fifty million dollars have been raised. All that has gone to cancer research. And now we are starting to see very tangible impact and outcomes from the research that we are directly funding. And, and one of the best examples of that is we established the Pelotonia Institute for Immuno-Oncology. Uh, immuno-oncology is thought to be sort of the fourth and next frontier of cancer treatments, cancer treatments that better target cancer cells and uh, do a better job of keeping your healthy cells healthy, and so the idea is that treatment isn't as harsh and people can sort of thrive. So that was three years ago we established that institute with a $100 million pledge uh, to Ohio State. This year, I've probably had 10 people come up to me during the ride, during ride weekend, and say either that they themselves or a family member had been treated or were being treated at the James with an immunotherapy drug through the Pelotonia Institute of Immuno-Oncology. An institute that did not exist four years ago with drugs and, and strategies that were not in place four years ago. And these people are thriving. These people are riding in our ride because of this. Yeah. And, you know, if you ever question like why, you know, why you're working so hard, why you're doing these late nights, why you're sort of, Rolling through the mud, sometimes it's stuff like that that yeah. sort of gives you that that light and that hope.
1: Yeah, it's great. I think that's a that's a good way for us to wrap up because you know what I think locally uh, has happened. You know, for for better or worse, is people really are energized about the ride. There's a lot of enthusiasm for that weekend and people are training and they're riding and they're you know doing stuff with their companies and teams and raising money and it's 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 really all amazing the culture the you know kind of uh brand honestly you know people it's aspirational people want to be a part of it but the but at the end of the day the cause is to fight cancer and I think the results are really there. you know, it's one thing to raise 250 million dollars, which is astounding. But then to put that money actually to work and see the results that it is actually making an impact on that cause, you know, fighting cancer, beating cancer, like you're doing it, you know and yeah. and that part is really what it's all about at the end of the day. I mean if, if you work yourself out of a job, you know everybody's going to be happy. Yeah, exactly. You know, exactly. So, um, anyway, I, I I really, you know, appreciate what you're doing and how you go about it. You know, it's been nice to get to know you, you know, in in recent years and see just the the compassion and the and the quality of of work that you do. And uh, great to you know hear your path to that, and excited to see you know, what comes next.
0: Yeah, thank you. No, I appreciate you having having me and getting to share just some of my upbringing and childhood. And, you know, I've, I've lived a amazing 36 years so far. So yeah. I'm really, really excited about what's next for me and what's next for the organization and how, you know, those two things can uh, can lead to some really great, great outcomes for people.
1: Yeah, great. Well, thanks again, Joe. I appreciate having you on the podcast. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to the Gravity Podcast. Please subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the entire Gravity Project, please go to gravityproject.com. Music heard of the show is provided courtesy of Kyle Lamoro and Oliver Oak.